Welcome to Talking Business Now. I'm your host, Kelly Scanlon. Thank you for joining us. We're talking business now with Carl Gould, the founder of Seven Stage Advisors, one of several companies Carl has founded over the years. In fact, by the age of 40, Carl had built three multi-million dollar companies. Along the way, as you can imagine, he's learned a lot about himself, about entrepreneurship, and about business in general, and he's written nine books on those topics. He's helped mentor the launch of more than 5,000 companies, and his methodologies are used around the world in 35 countries to be exact. On this episode of Talking Business Now, Carl talks with us about a variety of topics that can trip up business owners, especially as their businesses begin to grow. Welcome, Carl. Hey, Kelly, how you doing? Thanks for having me. So much that we can learn from you. So before we really get into those lessons learned, let's talk about some of those companies that you have been involved with. What is your entrepreneurial journey? How did it get started? Well, I mean, I had my first ever little business, a paper route at eight years old. I was sweeping the floors of a pallet factory at nine because my brother worked there and he got me the job and uh, he got me the gig. That was my side hustle at nine years old, sweeping mm. the floor at a pallet factory. But my very first business was a landscaping company that I started right out of college. It was my second year in school. I broke my leg pretty badly and going back to school because I was paying my own way and the grants dried up and the, you know, the loans come due. So going back in cash wasn't going to happen. So I started my first business. Mm -hmm. I had a landscape design build firm. I, I had that business from uh, for the next seven years till 1992, sold that company. Then I started a construction company, real estate development. I built modular homes and log homes as well. Sold that business in 2004. But the business I have today, I started actually in 1990. And I went to a personal development seminar with Tony Robbins and fell in love with the idea of helping people set their goals and pursue their dreams. I really just enjoyed the whole idea of it. And so I dove into every science of peak performance and coaching I could find. And so all through the 90s, my side hustle was coaching. And I was coaching situational leadership by Ken Blanchard and Franklin Covey and Dale Carnegie leadership uh, with Tony Robbins and NLP, DISC. You name the methodology, and I was somehow involved in it. For some pretty heavy hitters there. Those were some heavyweight names. They still are. Yeah, 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 no doubt. And, and you know, it's funny. I got the chance to work with, with uh, just about all of them at one point. I spoke at Tony Robbins' Unleash the Power Within seminars from 2005 to 2007, and I wrote the coaching breakout session that they still run today. I wrote and, and delivered that, that they still do at the seminars today. And uh, so that was really cool. He, his company became a client. And then I wrote a book with Ken Blanchard and Stephen Covey in 2008 called The Blueprint for Success. So that was cool that I got the chance to work with two people that I learned from in the very beginning. So in 2002, I started the company I have today, Seven Stage Advisors. And it's based on the methodology that I wrote in the 90s when I was trying to figure out how do you have a coaching business? And my passion was... I wanted a business that the average person couldn't make enough money to live on their own. And back then there was an expression that said, coaches will take a full-time day job to feed their coaching addiction, right? Because they wanted to coach so bad, but you can't make any money at it. And it was mostly coaches coaching coaches. And I said, wait a minute, I want to do this as a real job, but I live in New Jersey, have a house, have a growing family. You can't live on $23,000 a year, which is what the average coach made in the 90s, you know, as my primary. I said, I've got to figure out a way to make this 
every bit the profession that an accountant or an attorney or a financial services advisor, insurance agent, you name it, was doing. And so I wrote a methodology of and a process where you can bill enough money to have the life that you want no matter where you live. So that picked up some steam and then we've trained and certified about 7,000 coaches over the years in 35 countries. So you've really made that an enterprise. It's not just a, a lot of coaches are solopreneurs, but you have you found a way to turn it into a full-fledged enterprise. You mentioned passion at one point during your entrepreneurial journey about you, that's what you had this passion for was coaching. You also had a landscaping business. You had a construction business. You've been involved yeah. in real estate. Does a person have to be passionate about the companies that they own in order to be successful? No, not at all. As a matter of fact, I know there's a lot of talk out there like always do your passion, always make sure that it's a passion play. And it helps. Don't get me wrong. It helps if you love what you do, because it's going to be hard for you to sustain the energy of a business that you hate. But you don't have to, but you don't have to love it. You really don't have to, because you can just be really good at it. I wasn't passionate about landscaping. I liked it. But I, I can't say I was passionate about it. Over time, it wore me down. Like I, you, you might not have it forever, or you have to make sure that you're leveraging to other people, especially if it's a side hustle. You can just do something you're good at, make money, and have that, and have your why be in in other areas of your life. Also, what you're doing doesn't have to be the passion, but maybe how you're doing it could be, or True. why yes. you're doing the business could be. As long as you have reasons that drive you, you can do something that isn't your favorite. And, and let's face it, in every business we have, in every job that we do, there's parts of the job you don't like. Yes. Most people, if you looked at the major areas of your business, strategy, biz dev, ops, and finance, there's one out of those four you don't like to do that you still do, you know, or still involved in. Yeah, and you make a good point there that there's always something that you don't like about your business. And the thing is, is that even as the owner, that particular area of your business that you don't particularly care for, you probably still have more control over it as the owner than you would if you were employed somewhere. Right. But more importantly, you're home with your family. You take vacations when you want. You're getting all the other aspects to it. So you say, you know what? I don't despise the business I have. I mean, if you totally hate the business you're in, that's a different story than not being passionate. So passion is on one way other side of the scale, you know, and then hating what you do is on the totally other side of the scale. If you're comfortable that you can do the job, do it well, and it's something that you don't hate doing, then you're fine. It's very personal that you've got to answer for yourself there if you find yeah. yourself uh, questioning whether or not you should continue to go forward with your business. What over the years in your own experience and also in coaching other businesses, what are some of the top mistakes that you see entrepreneurs consistently make? They take their foot off the gas is number one. And specifically, they take their foot off the gas in marketing and then secondly in sales. So say you wanted a part-time lifestyle consulting business, and you wanted to have five clients, you go full board so you get your five clients, then you can slow down the marketing and sales machine. The thing about letting your foot off the gas is you have to know what your capacity is because one of the worst things you can do is go out there and market, 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 sales come in, but then right. you can't deliver on your promises. So talk to us about that. Right. So this is, this is a touchy subject. 
if I say, well, here's my capacity, and I'm going to go on this roller coaster of market, sale and market, implement, sale and market, implement, sale and market, implement, you're going to get on a roller coaster that is going to be very hard to get off. So if you're growing a business now, a couple of statistics, just so you, everyone can frame where they're at in the conversation, only 4% of businesses will ever do over a million dollars a year, right? And that doesn't mean that's right. a good goal or bad goal, but 96% of businesses never get there. And that's fine if that's your goal. If your goal is to be 4% in the 4% club, then you don't stop selling and marketing no matter what. So I studied under an organizational lifecycle guru, and he said, Carl, if I had my choice, I'd take sales and marketing, and I would hide them. I'd put them in a silo somewhere where they don't get a, t a chance to talk to ops. They don't get to talk to anyone else. You set your goal, and you guys go out and sell and market to that goal. You don't stop no matter what. And you know what? It's ops' problem to make sure they can fulfill. Because if you put sales and marketing next to ops, you're going to kill sales and marketing. Because you know what ops is going to say? Oh, my God, we can't deliver. So go, guess what sales does? There they are. They get that objection. Well, can you guys deliver? Oh, uh, uh, well, yeah, definitely. Uh, <laughs> and they stutter and they stammer and they blow the sale. So if you're under a million dollars, what I would suggest that you do, because you're going to do it anyway, when you get near top capacity, you are going to start looking for outsourced resources, virtual assistance, other resources that you can leverage to help you in your business. Yes. Start now. Whether you want to be 200000 a year, 500000 a year, or $5 million a year, start using outsourced resources right now. Your first hire is a financial resource. Find an outsourced bookkeeping service, outsourced CFO, you name it. Make sure somebody is keeping an eye on your numbers while you're looking after the clients. Then number two is you're going to hire a virtual assistant that handles your calendar and your email, your inboxes of all sorts. Do those two things as soon as possible. That's an investment. So often people think, oh, I'm just spending money. I'm spending money that I could be using for something else. But you have to take the longer view. And as you said, start doing that as soon as you can. And the nice thing about outsourcing is that you can turn it off if you hit a lull and don't need it. Right. And you bring up a good point because your ability as an entrepreneur to contract the business, meaning shrink the business, mm -hmm. when you slow down is as equal, if not as strong a skill as your ability to expand the business as it grows. Because exactly what you say will happen. During a lull, you have all this fixed overhead that you cannot, do not want to have. You absolutely need to make sure that you can, you can shrink the business. We say staff to the valleys, subcontract to the peaks. That's, mm. our, that's our way of thinking of it. You know, one of the ways that you can know it, when should I hire, how should I, you know, when, when do I know it's the right time and when do I know when I should get the right person? Well, what you do is look at how much your business does. Let's say you do 200,000 a year. There's 2,000 hours in a year. You're not billing yourself 2,000 hours yet, but, you know, there's 2,000 hours in a year. So take however many hours you're working. Let's say it's 1,000. And you divide that into 200,000 you're worth $200 an hour. I'm assuming you're a solopreneur, you're getting all your own business. Anything that gets in the way of you doing $200 an hour work, you need to have somebody else doing it. So, you know, Kelly, as you say, it's, it's an expense and I've got to put the money out there. But if a VA costs me 25 bucks an hour, my outsourced bookkeeper costs me $20 an hour, and that frees me up four hours a week to do $200 an hour work, it's an easy, you know, do the math. It's, it's weighted in, in your favor. And that's a great formula that you provided. I think that a lot of people have probably never even thought about it that way. 
So we talked about sales and marketing, that people are too quick to turn it off. And then we talked about sometimes how you get all the sales, but then you don't have the processes in place to service those accounts. What are some of the other mistakes that you see continually thwarting the growth of a business? They discount their way to market share, or they try to. Ah, yeah, big one. So I'm brand new. I've got a new podcast. I've got a, I'm a new coach. I'm a new consultant. I just started my agency. I just got into my law practice. I normally would charge $300 an hour, but I'm new, so I'm going to charge $150. No, 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 no. Just because you're new doesn't mean you're less valuable. I mean, if Richard Branson or Oprah Winfrey came out and said, hey, listen, I've never done this before, but I'm going to start a mentoring, uh, one-on-one mentoring practice, and it will, yes, it will be me. You will work with me one-on-one. Is Richard Branson or Oprah Winfrey going to discount their hourly rate? No, no not at all. Not. In fact, <laughs> they'll be charging premiums. Right, exactly. So, so here's the script for all of you that are, that are getting ready to grow your business or about to launch. Here's what you say. I am now available to the marketplace in a way I never was before. I used to be in corporate America or in the corporate world. I'm now on my own. You could not have hired me before. Here is my resume, all the things I'm good at. I am now available to the marketplace in a way I never was before. And if you're good enough, whether you charge $100 an hour, $150 an hour, $175, isn't going to matter to your clientele. They're going to want the value because if you're as good as what you say you are, you're going to make them a lot more than you ever charge them. So as long as that's the case, charge what you're worth worth you do not discount your way to market share charge what you're worth from the beginning don't devalue your services because you're going to you're going to get people who are passionate in what you do and they're willing to pay the interesting thing about that undercutting the market with your pricing in many cases it has the opposite effect than, of what you thought people will see that and go well they must not be very good if that's all that they're charging or simultaneously you attract the kinds of clients that you don't want the ones that can't pay for the really good value. So there's both of those considerations as well. It gets worse. You launch your business, you cut your price in half, and you get overwhelmed with responses. So now your capacity is taken, and you're like, well, I'm not making enough money. I don't have the lifestyle. Well, you don't have a capacity problem. You have a pricing problem. To your point, you've attracted that 50% buyer who wants to stay with you. You would now like to fire them, wouldn't you, and go on to higher priced clients, but hello, you're the one that made the offer. Right. Well, and even worse, you don't have enough of a profit margin to hire anyone to help you with them. Bingo. So yeah, this this story gets worse and worse as we keep going through it. (laughs) We're spiraling, Kelly. We're spiraling. See how bad it gets, folks? Don't discount your way. That's the second big mistake. A lot of times business owners will blow with the wind in terms of what their competition is doing. Talk to us about how to use competition wisely. Ah, good, good, good. Your competition is great, in my opinion, for just one reason. To find out what pisses off the rest of the marketplace about your industry. That's it. That's all your competition is good for, right? Because they're going to go out there and they're going to fumble around, make mistakes. They're great market researchers for you. So what I like to do is I like to take the competitors. I want to read their reviews. I want to, when I'm trying to sell my product or service to somebody, I'm listening very acutely to what they're saying about all the things they're upset with because they're not upset about those things with me. They're upset about those things because of all the other people in the niche 
that they've ever interacted with in the past. Oh, are you going to be late? Are you going to call me back? Or what are they doing? They're repeating all the bad experiences. So I'm reading, I'm reading reviews. I'm listening to, um, you know, reading blogs or comments on YouTube video. I'm also listening to objections. And then when I get a client, I'm going to ask them, why did you choose me? And they're going to say, you know what, because you, you, Kelly, you were really good. You were very attentive to my needs. And, and then they're going to say, I didn't choose company two, three, four, and five because they were too slow. They were too expensive. It was too hard to onboard. You know, it was too complicated. I didn't know what I was getting for my money. They would never lay it. And they're going to give you all the complaints they have with the industry. So here's what I like to do. Use your competitors to find out what ticks everybody else off about the industry then roll all of those complaints into your business plan and have an, uh, an option every time you give out your, your pricing to somebody. You want product or program or process A, B, you know, A, you can have it at the standard version or our, bra our gold guarantee version. And I'm going to take all of those complaints, I'm going to roll them into my gold guarantee version, put a premium on it, and say, I've heard you. I've heard everything that you all have said about what you're upset about in the industry. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you an offering where you won't have to deal with any of that. And if any of that ever happens to you, I'm going to, I'll give you all your money back. And you will be mm. leveraging all of the complaints, all of the top-of-mind issues that people have with, your, with the whole industry. So that's why I like that a lot because I want to make sure that I'm top-of-mind with my clients and my, my competitors are going to help me get there. Yeah, so you leverage. You leverage what they're not doing well, and you knock it out of the park, and you charge a premium for it because you know that is a pain point for your customers or for your industry. One other major mistake that business owners make, founders in particular, is they don't know when to step back and get out of their own way. The business gets to a point of growth, maybe even has some employees doing well, and it's really poised to break through and get to that next level, but the founder isn't the person that's going to take it there. And that doesn't mean they can't still be in the business, but they just don't know how to get out of their own way to get to that next level of growth. Talk to us about that. Think of yourself like a quarterback in football, right? Every single play, the ball is handed to the quarterback, just about every play. Mm -hmm. And the measure of a good quarterback is how quickly do you get that ball out of your hands and into the hands of the proper person. Do you hand it off so the running back can run with it? Do you throw it so the receiver can catch it and run with it? Do you throw it out of bounds? Do you just drop, fall on the ball to kill the play? Or do you run with it yourself? But your ability to make a decision and get the ball in the proper person's hands is your skill as a CEO. Conversely, when you watch the video of the greatest quarterback sacks of all time, you're going to notice one thing in common. The quarterback holds on to the ball too long. Mm. every time the quarterback holds on to the ball too long and doesn't make a decision with it, bad things happen. So you've got, you know, quick snap, quick release, quick snap, quick release. You look at some of the greatest quarterbacks of all time, they've done this study, like how long do they release the ball, right? And best quarterbacks in the world have the quickest release. They look at what the opposition is doing, they run the play or adjust the play accordingly, and then they get the ball in the person's hand and they have success. And the person who hangs on to it too long is mauled by the other team. And that's what happens yeah. if you're a business owner. Hang on to it too long, bad things happen. 
Yeah. You got to, you've got so many things going on during those split seconds. You know, you got to be able to read that field and like you say, make those quick adjustments and and still get rid of it. So great, great analogy there. Something else that you talk about is the winter of your business. What is the winter of your business and how do you and your business survive it? Yeah. So we, um, there, I've read a number of books and done some research on, on business cycles. And there's one popular one called the seasons of business. And, and so the winter of, of business is an overall macro cycle that we are in right now, by the way. And so we go through these 20 to 25 year cycles where how, where how we interact as a community and civilization changes, but as a society, but also how we do business changes. And so the winter season is the winter of volatility. And winter season started in 2005, and it's estimated to go until 2029. And during the winter season, you see dramatic ups and downs and ups and downs and ups and downs. But the point is that the volatility, the swings in the marketplace are dramatic during winter. And this is the time when we have to recalibrate, re-energize our businesses and um, and realize that there's a shakeout in the market and only the strong will survive. So in the winter season, which happens like clockwork over the last 500 years with no, with no exception, it comes our way. It's very predictable. And there are certain things that you should be doing in your business and certain things that you shouldn't be doing in your business. And one of the main ones is, you know, we are in the age of the expert. And so being a thought leader and being an expert is a must. You know, there's a ton of strategies that go with that. But in the winter of your business, it is more important than ever to connect with your client and understand what they have as top of mind problems and solve those problems. One of the things that's going to happen is the weaker companies will die during this time. Now, we are in an upswing right now, but there's another correction coming. And in in the last 500 years, there have always been two corrections in every winter. We had one in 2008, 2009. And mm-hmm. it's anticipated we're going to get the next one. I don't know when it is, but if you look at history, there's always been two. And whenever the market and the you know confidence has been at its peak, that's when we correct. And so we want to be ready for that next correction. In your plan for your business, you need to have your up, down, and sideways plan. So if the market goes up, how do I accelerate and expand and take advantage of it? When it goes down, remember what we said before, How do I shrink and contract my business to take advantage of that and have cash ready so I can take advantage of opportunities and I can buy talent and assets and businesses and accumulate during that time? And then what's my sideways strategy? What's my freemium model? What can I do to attract customers who are paralyzed because of the volatility? I need an amazing offer for that. You know, sometimes business owners are in a position where – they really, really love their business, but they're just not seeing the results from it. What advice do you give to them? Yeah, this is a tricky one. You know, a blinker light is when it goes off, that's when it tells you it's working. Like if a blinker stayed off the whole time, you would say it's broken. And if it stayed on the whole time, you would say it's broken. So, <laughs> right. right. You need empirical evidence and enough data to know that if whatever you just tried is working. So for example, if you do a marketing campaign and you say, we're going to run this campaign 10 times, run it 10 times. Don't run it twice and then say, oh, we didn't get our response. We need to shift. Dr. Edwards Deming would say 
that you did not have enough data, you'll never find out if your program was working because you shifted it too soon, you made too many variables, you can't test it out. If you're in the professional world, you, if, you ha if you provide services of any sort, the magic number is 60. You want 60 appointments, you meet with 60 business owners, 60 prospects or 60 buyers or whatever, and you say, did they like my pitch? And you only then adjust it after your 60th time. You make too many major tweaks in the beginning, you'll never know if it was right. So, mm -hmm. so shifting and pivoting too soon is a problem. Now, you've done it 60 times, and you know darn well you've got to pivot, and you don't. And you're like, no, 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 this is how we always did it. If the words come out of your mouth, this is how we always did it, and we're going to continue doing it this way, you're in trouble. That's a sign. Mm -hmm. Okay? So knowing when to pivot is, is a mistake, but stick with that. First, stick with your initial projection, and if you're still not sure, the number is 60. Go on 60 appointments. What would you leave our listeners with? If there was one thing that they could go back to their office or to their meet, staff meeting tomorrow and do, what would it be to make a difference? First, first thing I would do is I would, I would answer this question. If I were to raise my prices 1%, what percentage of my clientele would leave me? Would they would abandon me because I charge 100 and at 101, or they leave. Or if I charge 3% and then I go 1% higher and it's 3.03% and you'll leave me. If you ask yourself that question and you say to yourself, if I raise my prices 1%, nobody will leave me, okay, I would raise my prices because your pricing strategy is the number one way that you communicate with your clientele. The moment you announce your prices, you tell them who you are, but more importantly, you tell them who they are, and that's a little dangerous. So if they're willing to pay more, charge them more because that means that they like you for something more than just the utility of your product and service and they're willing to pay you more. They value your intangibles, so make sure that you are fully valuing your intangibles. That is something that so many business owners struggle with is the pricing, you know, where to start it, and then when they see that it's time to raise it, how do you convey that message? It's just a really difficult situation. I know you have a website with all kinds of resources on it. How would we get to that? Email carl at carlgould.com or go to my website, carlgould.com. And for your listeners, I'd like to give them a gift. If they go to the contact page and write business analysis in the, in the subject line, send me a submission form through the contact page, and we'll give you a two-hour growth advisory session with one of our team. We'll give you five suggestions on how to grow your business. Ah, very generous. Thank you so much, Carl. So that is carlgould.com, C-A-R-L-G-O-U-L-D, carlgould.com. Carl, thanks so much for sharing your experiences, your insights, your wisdom today. We really appreciate it. Oh, thanks so much for having me. And I'm your host, Kelly Scanlon. Thanks for joining us today. Be sure to visit the Talking Business Now website at talkingbusinessnow.com for access to all my podcasts and to sign up for the weekly Talking Business Now newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.